one shot at a time. Welcome back to the Enjoy the Walk podcast, ladies and gentlemen, as we in the Northeast here are starting to see some warm weather. Uh, We're starting to realize that our golf games are just not quite what they should be as we're entering into the spring and and summer times and tournament seasons right around the corner. Um, So excited to bring on the next guest here, uh, kind of from our neck of the woods, Dante, that that you know, East coast, a little bit South, but South of us anyway, but from that Virginia area, excited to bring in an instructor who's um, really doing some great things within the game of golf uh, at, down at the raspberry golf Academy, Josh Apple, Josh, really excited to have you on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It should be a good time. Absolutely, man. So, so start us off, you know, you're down in Virginia teaching what seems like full time right now. Um, are you guys busy right now? Are you guys seeing a, a pretty good uptick in, in people getting into the game and wanting to learn more uh, via lessons? Dude, since COVID hit, golf's been incredible. The boom's been insane. Uh, obviously, unfortunate circumstances, but uh, I thought I was busy before COVID happened. And since it's been I'm too busy. I, I didn't know what busy was until, you know, the last year. Um, if I want, I could give 12 lessons a day. Uh, I try to cap it off at 10. Sometimes I go to 11, but I'm given eight to 10 plus lessons a day. So uh, people are getting into golf. People who used to play golf are back into it. Uh, and then your avid, avid golfers are playing even more often. So it's, it's been an insane uptick for sure. Yeah, it's something that was amazed me. I think it was the first time I experienced this kind of during COVID and post COVID, if you could call it that right now, because golf was shut down for a little bit in some states and then, you know, was able to resume. Um, and, and since that resumption of golf has really boomed, like you were saying, I first saw it out in California. I went out to Southern California Golf Association uh, or the Golf Academy out there, uh, spent some time with Mike Mags and the range from end to end, they have over 200 spots there for the four hours I was there was full. It, it was, there was people waiting and it was just incredible to me to see the, the range of people. It was people taking it seriously. It was people picking it up for the first time. Um, and like you were saying, the people that have even maybe played for a long time and are just picking it back up again and getting serious about it. Everyone seems to be playing golf. Um, take us back before, I guess, you know, this craziness and all your teaching, where did the game first start for you? And I know you've done a lot of playing in the past too. Where did the love for the game first start? Sure. Uh, my dad taught me how to play when I was really young. He played his whole life. Uh, he played in college golf. He played for Duke. Uh, he played competitive golf his whole life. He still plays uh, senior amateur tournaments. He's one of the best senior ams in Virginia uh, now at 65 years old. So Growing up with that, um, playing with him all the time, being a member of a country club, I had that, uh, which is really cool exposure. I would say basketball is my favorite sport until I was about 12 or 13, uh, but I'm about 5'8", so basketball was not going to be my future. <laughs> uh, it was always going to be golf, even though I loved both growing up. I would say by the time I was maybe around that 12, 13-year uh, time, I started playing golf seven days a week, and I've been at a golf course seven days a week, either playing or coaching ever since then. Um, I started playing in national junior tournaments when I was 15. I played in college. I played at George Mason University, four-year starter there. Uh, my senior year of college, I decided that I was going to turn pro after school, and I played amateur golf uh, the rest of that summer, which was t- 2012, and then turned pro at the end of 2012. 
and played full time on the main tours until early 2016. And at that time is when I switched to coaching. And I kind of thought it was going to be coaching, playing, but quickly I realized that my life should be in coaching. That's where I, that's where I was meant to be. Uh, so now I still compete, but coaching is definitely my main gig the last five years. Yeah, and, and I want to get into that a little later as well, the way you compete as an assistant professional. Obviously, you're finding some success there too. Uh, but take us back. You mentioned 5'8 and being a basketball player. Dante, that's kind of your neck of the woods in the 5'8 realm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately <laughs> it is. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's crazy how some sports when you're growing up like obviously you know your gen your genetics are your genetics right so there's really no changing that but there are some sports where that you know you're limited if you're on the shorter ends of things and it and it's cool to see that golf necessarily does not have that there really are no right. limits i mean uh you see guys like dj who's like six plus who like pipes the ball out there but then you got guys out there um you know, that are like Roy McIlroy is five, nine, pretty much hitting it further than DJ at times. So it just kind of goes to show that, you know, when you're playing, when you're playing a sport, there's certain aspects of it and certain attributes that you need. But that's one thing like you saw is basketball was something that you really wanted to pursue. But if you look at kind of the generation, or I guess you can say who's playing it, it's, you know, six plus, but you know, and then you gravitate towards golf and it's awesome to see that. And I think that's one of the things, you know, I was a lacrosse player, so I was like shorter end of the stick, but you didn't necessarily need height, but it helped a little bit. And then, but then you go and play golf. It doesn't matter. Another sure. guy in that five, like so, five, eight, five, nine awesome. realm. I always think of is Colin Morikawa. Yeah. He's had an incredible amount of success. Um, you know, I mean, you talk got us out there who's still in the five foot. Poor Rick. He can't, he can't catch a break though. Realm of things. <laughs> so talk us through, man. You said you played some web.com and some, you know, some other mini tours. What was the playing experience like straight out of college? You said you played amateur golf after, you know, your, your last year of college and then turned professional. Um, what was the playing like? And you, you know, you said you went at it full time. So were you traveling? What was that life like? And, and, you know, where did you kind of find some struggles or successes uh, doing that, doing that life full time? Yeah, when I graduated 2012, I played, I started treating golf as my career, even though I was playing amateur tournaments that summer. Uh, I qualified for the USAM, and that was the last amateur event I ever played in. Uh, I happened to be paired with Justin Thomas for 36 holes there, so that was pretty cool. Uh, that's another guy in the 5859 category. It's pretty far. Uh, I played with him, and it was in Denver, so imagine how far the ball was going there with, with Justin Thomas. Uh, but after that event, I turned pro and moved to Arizona. And I played the Gateway Tour, uh, which is Phoenix-based, Arizona-based pro tour. And so I did that for a few months and then moved to Charlotte and played the eGolf Tour, which has had a million different names, been Hooters and Swing Thought and all those different tours you guys might be familiar with. And then went back to Arizona and did Gateway in the winter and then went back to Charlotte in the summer and back to like <laughs> So I lived in Charlotte in the summer and Phoenix in the winter for four years in a row. Uh, Wow. Success stories and failures. Many stories of both categories, for sure. Uh, if I had more success stories, I'd be on the PGA Tour, right? <laughs> Not coaching. Uh, I would say I'll start with stories on why it's so difficult. 
there was one event where I shot 500 in the first round and was in fifth place and then shot one over in the second round and missed the cut. <laughs> cut went to minus five. Uh, another example would be in our tour championship, which was a $50,000 purse event on uh, e-golf. I had the first round lead with a eight under 64. I shot 69 in the next round. So three under, I'm at minus 11 after two rounds and I'm still in the top five and then shot even, even on the weekend and did not crack the top 20. It's so, incredible how low, low, consistently low those guys go. And not even, like you said, they're not even PGA Tour pros. That, that's why it's so hard to get to that level because you got to go six, seven under every round to, to find yourself making enough even, not even just like being successful to the next level, but just making enough week in and week out to get by. Yeah, uh, I, <laughs> I made checks, but I took a loss, massive losses each year. Uh, spending way more than you can make on the mini tours, unless you win every week. You have to be top five, top 10 every week all year to make a profit when you count traveling around hotels, caddies, food, you know, being a member at a country club and all those fees add up. Entry fees were on average 1100 per event. So you're just putting money in the pot and going and playing for it. You're just gambling. Um, if you make the cut, you make your money back. You really have to be, like I said, top five, top 10 to profit. So you could just make your money back making the cut, but still lose money that week with all the other expenses. Yeah. It's, it's wild to me. And, and and Dante and I've talked about it, um, you know, a lot too. We used to have a, a guy on the podcast with us that was traveling as well. Isaiah, he was traveling in and out of web.com Monday qualifiers and, and playing some Florida swing tours and stuff like that. And, and, and he, he kind of made the same, you know, admissions of like, man, I, I made money, but lost money, if that makes sense. And, and it was a crazy, like, conundrum he found himself in. And Dante, I, I think you can kind of re reference a lot of that as well. Yeah, it seemed like he was, like you were saying, you know, you're playing almost paycheck to paycheck, but in a sense, you're almost gambling that paycheck at the same time. And it, hoping that you can at least break even to just have the funds to get yourselves into the next tournament. That's just alone within itself is, as they say, it's a grind. It's an absolute grind. I mean, more power to all the guys that can do that. Yeah. To the guys that do that week on... in and week out, it, it, it blows my mind. Um, I, I guess to, to that being said too, I, I I'm seeing on the list here of the raspberry golf Academy, you, you have your low tournament round at 63. Did that come in one of those weeks when you were out there just playing, you know, week in and week out and, and how does your game maybe differ now that you're, you're teaching most of your time instead of really chasing it as a full-time job? Yeah, so I had a 63 twice and a 64. Uh, so I definitely had some low scores. But uh, like I said earlier, you have to do that three, four times in a row. Uh, I was really good at doing that once and then shooting around even, you know, the next day and losing 10, 20 spots, uh, <laughs> which isn't ideal for making a living. Um, yeah, so I, I would say I went low uh, pretty regularly when I was practicing 10 hours a day. Uh, now that I teach 10 hours a day and the only time I play golf is in tournaments, uh, I am incredibly good at shooting 
between 70 and 72 every time I play golf. So uh, I finished top five, like every section event, top 10, you know, every section event I play in because they're not tour pros. They're just good players. Uh, I don't win a lot because I'm not shooting the 66s and 7s because I'm not practicing, right? So uh, I would say my game is at a point that I've, I can play once a week, twice a week, whatever it might be, and shoot around even without practicing. We Dante and I were just having this conversation before we got on the call. I was like, man, I, I think I got to go start taking lessons from, from Josh because I'm at the same spot in my game. And it's like incredibly frustrating. And Dante, I think you're at the same spot too of like, you want your bad to be 76 and you're consistent to be that 70, 72. But like, how do we break that? I, I guess for me, I feel like it's a soft cap or a hard cap even, or like a lid on a, on a pot that's just waiting to blow off. But it's like, I can't, I can't get under, I can't get under that 70 mark if my life depended on it or 68 mark if my life depended on it. And I think what, no matter skill level, there's a lot of people stuck there, right? If you're a nineties golfer trying to break 90 or an eighties golfer trying to break 80 and whatever your level is, there's a lot of cap there. And I feel like, is it just as easy as saying, we'll get out and play more or from your your teaching perspective i guess we'll start there on the teaching talk you know what do you see in a lot of people that's holding them back from breaking their quote-unquote cap of wherever they might be yeah well when i played full-time i literally practiced eight to ten hours a day so i felt like i was putting in the work and those low scores were going to happen uh so now when i compete i have bad shots that I wouldn't have had before, bad putts that I wouldn't have had before, but I'm still a good enough player that I don't really need to practice to shoot around even. That's just going to happen. Uh, most people don't really understand what hard work is, I would say. Uh, I have some juniors that come to me and say, hey, I really want to play in college, and there'll be a sophomore or junior in high school already, and they shoot around 80, and they practice a couple times a week, and they just have no clue what it really takes. Uh, my handicap was – plus three or four when I was a senior in high school and I played at George Mason, which is a good school, but it's not like it's Oklahoma state. Right. So to play division one golf is incredibly difficult, but most people just don't really understand what hard work actually is. It, it takes hours and hours of hard work. Uh, secondly, most people that are struggling, like they shoot 80, but not 79 or 70, but not 69. That comes down to mental, right? It's like that one stroke is you, you get psyched out that you just can't do it right? You think outcome instead of process. Yeah, it definitely is mental. I think, you know, whether you say, Hey, it's just a, it's a putt for 79 instead of 80 that you're all of a sudden there's tension in the forearms and, you know, you can't shake your head of like, well, this does mean something. And um, there, there's a huge part of it, obviously that is mental. And then there's a huge part of it too. Like you were describing, it's just hard work too. Um, you know, an, an hour on the range uh, twice a week doesn't really, you know, I guess, put you in the right position to see the results that you want to see, whether it's a swing change or just grooving a, a, a good, you know, uh, feeling around the greens or whatever it is. Um, but I, I think you're spot on there. Now, you know, going from the playing portion to teaching, um, you made that step in 2016, if I'm not mistaken, you said, um, why, why make the step into teaching? Was it always an interest in teaching? Um, and, and what was that first couple of weeks and months like, um, from playing to teaching? You would say my 
entrance into teaching was unique in that I went to work for my coach. Uh, the guy who started Raspberry Golf Academy uh, was my coach since high school. Hmm. And so when I decided that, hey, this four years on the mini tour grind, losing money every year, maybe isn't for me. Uh, let's, uh, let's go into coaching. I gave him a call and he said, yeah, you, I know you'd be good at this. I want you on my team. Uh, so I went to work for him, but for an entire year, entire calendar year, I did not give lessons. I watched him teach all day, every day. That's all I did. So in that first year, by the end of the year, maybe I gave a few lessons here and there, but I, I just watched it coach all year for an entire year, sat there and watched eight hours of lessons a day. There's something incredibly be said about finding a mentor. Um, I, I'm in a focus group with a lot of other guys that own businesses and the same thing that you did, they advocate a lot of, you know, startups or whoever, whatever you want to do in the business world to find a mentor and just literally, if you can be their shadow. And, and that was their biggest, you know, advice was, you know, that's the best way to learn is find someone that's already succeeding at some, one of the highest levels and, and just watch and learn and soak it in like a sponge. Um, you know, over that full year, and, and first, I guess, too, who is, what is the name of this teacher? You know, who is he and, and why, why did you feel like it was such a strong move to, to really mentor under him for a full year? Yeah, his name's Patrick McGuire. Uh, like I said, he's the owner, founder of Raspberry Golf Academy. He started it in 2007. Uh, when I first started working with him, he was actually just teaching at a driving range. Um, and then he eventually opened his own academy. But when I started working with him, even just working at a driving range, like I do now, uh, just a driving range, you can put that in quotes. Uh, he was the guy in Northern Virginia that all the good players went to. Uh, so I would start with him in high school because he was the guy if you wanted to get good at the game. And then he branched out from there. When I was uh, working with him, when I was playing professionally, he had about 15, 20 different tour pros at various levels, Asian tour, European tour, Horn Ferry Tour. Uh, so he uh, graduated from the Northern Virginia guy to a uh, guy who works with tour pros. And uh, now he's kind of, his passion has become getting younger kids who actually want to play on tour uh, to that level. Because if you take guys who are already pros and start working with them, then they already have so much in their head, right? Con misconceptions or whatever it might be, that stubbornness, uh, versus he's now taking kids who are younger and basically taking them on the journey to professional golf. That, that's incredible. I think a lot of people um, miss that step when they're growing up as junior golfers is, you know, getting the right instruction early because there's, like you said, with the longtime tour pros or whoever it may be that the older you get, the longer you're around the game, the more misconceptions you can get in your head around the game, rather than starting out with the correct information that can help you build the fundamentals to where even if you're, you know, 10, 11, 12, if you're getting the wrong stuff, then it's really tough. Even when you're, you know, three or four years into it to reverse track and, and go in the right direction. Um, what are some of those core principles that you've learned through him and that you even teach in your own, you know, day-to-day -day teaching styles? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing that I've taken away from him and that I use every day is teaching all pillars of golf. We call them pillars. Uh, what that means is within technique, you have short game, putting, full swing, wedging is what we call from like 60 to 130 yards outside that pitching area. Uh, then you have 
your lifestyle stuff like fitness and nutrition and how that affects your golf game. And then the mind, mental game, the psychology of it, uh, confidence levels and how to practice is one of our pillars. So I don't just stand there and work on the full swing. I really do get into all that with all my students. Uh, if they play bad in a tournament, ask them how much sleep did they get? What did they eat before the round? What did they eat during the round? What was their mind like? What was their tension level like? It's not just, oh, I hit a bad shot. Well, then your path or face was this. There's, there's so much more to it, especially when you're talking competition. Yeah, that's, it's always incredible to me when you look at players that play at the highest of levels and whether it's a, you know, weekend club championship or a uh, amateur event or a pro mini tour event, you know, you look at the guys that are succeeding and there is, there's so much like, you know, a lot of people who don't succeed call these people way too analytical or over the top, but it does, it, it comes from a mindset of like, Hey, there are so many factors that go into playing well, not just like you said, the open or close club face at, at, at impact, uh, especially over a two or three day tournament, your nutrition, your sleep, but you know, everything plays such a huge factor. Um, and, and I love that there's that quote unquote pillars, because I think that's a phenomenal way to present such information. Yeah, I would say the pillar I actually end up working the most on with players who are already good would be process. So that's uh, plan, do, review. What do you do before the shot? What do you do when you're in your routine and in your setup? And then what do you do after the shot to review it? Uh, so you can break that down in process on each shot. You can also talk about that before a round or before a tournament, planning what you're going to do at that tournament and then executing while you're there and then reviewing it after. So I like having my players send me reviews. Uh, during, you know, while they're at tournament each day after the day and then at the end of the tournament as well, review it. So, yeah, I'm spending a lot of time talking on the process pillar. I, I love that. I think if you talk to any great legend in any sport, whether it's golf, baseball, basketball, they talk about why they were good and it's the process, right? It's that day in and day out kind of, I would say mindlessness, but it becomes mindless because they're doing it over and over again. You have to understand what you're doing first before it can become mindless. Uh, I, I love that, that that's your main pillar. Um, you know, how many, how many folks are you seeing in, in a, within a month or two months that, that are really um, chasing it? I guess you could call it chasing the dream of, of playing professional golf at this point. And, you know, from 2016 to now, it's, it's only four or five years of coaching basically yeah. four since you said you spent that first full year kind of mentoring um, and you know, how many, how many kids are looking up to, to Josh Apple and saying, this is the guy that's going to lead me towards a, a promising career in golf. Yeah, it's been really cool. Uh, obviously starting out when you give your first lesson, you're working with players who aren't very good or they're kids, right? That's, that's kind of where every golf instructor starts. And that's where I was. Uh, and I've really come a long way since then. I still work with those people as well. I've, I don't turn people away, right? I work with all ages and abilities and skill sets and genders and everything, but uh, I've grown toward more working with good players uh, here of late. Uh, I had two players in 2020 signed division one uh, scholarships, which is really cool. One guy and one girl. Uh, I have another that I'm trying to get on a college team right now. And uh I'm starting to get a lot of the good amateur players around Northern Virginia, like mid-ams uh, around my age, around 30. Uh, certainly uh, the two that are going to be playing in college want to play professionally. And uh, I, was, I would say I have a lot in the 10 to 13 age range that do want to be pros when they grow up. So it's, yeah, it's been really cool to see that change in my clientele the last, last few years. 
I can imagine it just adds a little fuel to the fire of kind of adding to your own quote unquote stable of, of really high quality players. Um, you know, you look at accolades and, and I feel like that's how people build their, you know, how successful they are, especially as a, as a golf teaching professional over time is how many players have gone on to do really great things within the game as well. Um, obviously within the last past year, you're the raspberry golf Academy, 2020 coach of the year. Um, I think it goes without saying, you know, you have kids signing division one scholarships and, and whatnot that you're having success getting, you know, people to the next level. Um, what, what I think is really neat as well, though, too, is you're still working with the individuals who are maybe just picking up the game or the kids that are just figuring it out or whoever. And I, and I think it's, it's great to have that kind of um, range as far as who you can work with and, and still be able to get across the points of the game. Makes my job very interesting. It's never boring. I could have a lesson with a four-year-old. The next lesson might be a 15-year-old on a high school team. The next lesson might be a college player. And then the next lesson might be a mid-am. And then it might be your seven-year-old who learned how to play golf two years ago, right? So my days are not boring. I never know what I'm going to get. Uh, yeah, it definitely keeps, keeps things interesting. And also, I'm not a method person where I teach the same thing to everybody. I entirely base the lesson on the person and how I teach based on the person. So even if I were teaching all of the same age or ability, even those lessons would be very different, but certainly the variety makes it interesting. Yeah. I can only imagine what your, uh, what your day might look like if you're going from a, a 20 plus handicap to a, a scratch golfer and then back to a, you know, high handicapper. Um, it, it definitely, I can only imagine keeps it fresh, keeps you light on your feet uh, and keeps the brain working. I imagine you're, you're always firing of new ideas for, for the next person up on the, on the, teaching matter, however, however you get folks to, to learn the game. Yeah, I would say uh, something else that's unique to Raspberry is how much we analyze people's personalities. Uh, so not only am I analyzing someone's ability to hit a golf ball during an evaluation during that first lesson, I'm always, I'm always uh, analyzing the personality too. So I teach uh, all my students different based on how they're naturally wired. Uh, someone could be like uh, a Zach Johnson type who's very processed, very routine oriented, lays up on all the par fives, you know, that kind of person. You could have a Dustin Johnson who just hits the ball and goes and hits it again, doesn't even know where – it just seems like they're never even thinking, right? Obviously he does, but it just has that appearance. You could have someone like Bubba or Phil who can't picture a straight, normal golf shot, balls curving all over the place. Or you could have someone like Bryson who's a mad scientist, right? So if you if one of those people came to you and you gave them the same lesson, those, those four different types – it's not going to work, right? So you have to totally change your teaching based on the person. I can't teach a Bryson person like a Dustin Johnson person. It's just it's totally different lessons. I love that. Um, there, there's something to be said about uh, analyzing the, the type of person, not just the swing that you're teaching and, and kind of bringing everything into composing a, a good golf swing and a good golf game. Cause someone can have a good golf swing. And if you're teaching them the wrong principles that don't relate to them, then the get the golf game is not going to translate into lower scores. Um, talk us about, talk to us about raspberry golf Academy as a whole, you know, it's not just yourself and, and your mentor, but it, it's, it's a, it's a larger staff, you know, how, how fun is it to work, you know, as part of raspberry golf Academy and, and how are the other folks that work with you in the day and day uh, really affecting everyone within the golf industry? Yeah, I've been with raspberry since 2007, either as a player or a coach. So to me, it's home, right. I've been with them since high school. Uh, 
uh, and some of the same instructors are there that whole time. So that's really cool to see uh, the same instructors there since when I was in high school. Uh, we have six properties, five in Northern Virginia, one in Pennsylvania. So if you have a few instructors, each property, obviously that we're around 20 or so instructors. Uh, there's probably 12 to 15 full-time uh, instructors. Uh, the core group of us that are, that are full-time instructors get together regularly for meetings, uh, for training. Uh, less so now with COVID, it's been more Zoom, more virtual meetings, right? Like every, every other job out there. But uh, yeah, so it's, it's cool. We get amongst ourselves. And I still meet with Pat McGuire, my, my mentor at the Sinset. I meet with him uh, once a week. So I still do two hours of training with him once a week because, I mean, you can always learn more information. Uh, so I feel like we do a good job of training amongst ourselves and exchanging information amongst ourselves to help our students get better. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, there's something you always should be learning, whether you think you've got the perfect concoction of of drills and, and setups and whatever. You always, I feel like the industry is always progressing. Um, new ways to teach is always progressing. And it's really cool to know that you guys are always trying to stay on the forefront of, of I imagine, teaching methods and teaching technologies and whatnot to, to kind of help everyone within uh, your industry and, and within your organization that comes out and, and looks at Raspberry Golf Academy and says, hey, they're, they're, they're who I choose to you know, help me progress my golf game forward in some way, shape or form. Yeah. And I teach at two of our locations. I'm at Virginia golf center, which is a Fairfax uh, public driving range. We have a part three course. And then I teach at raspberry falls. Uh, that's in Leesburg. It's about 40 minutes away from Virginia golf center. Uh, and that's a 18 hole uh, golf course in the mountains, a really pretty course. So, but anyway, I have different clientele too, as you can imagine, one's a nice 18 hole, uh, community, you know, nice neighborhood, big homes. Uh, the other one is a public driving range, uh, right next to, a, another public golf course, like a County parks course that's popular. Uh, so definitely different clientele. Uh, when I first started teaching at the two properties, but now that my name's gotten out there more in the area, people are traveling and going to wherever I happen to be that day, which has been a nice, uh, cool for me to see that people will drive an hour two hours to come take a lesson versus when I first started is like, Oh, you're all the way at raspberry day. I'm not going out that far to see that's too far. Right. <laughs> so it, it's been nice. That, that, that kind of progression is always neat, whether it's in the golf teaching industry or if you own a business or whatever, it's interesting to see how far people will travel. Cause that's truly your, your end all be all effect. Right. It's like, if people really start traveling to see me, I'm doing something right. Um, and, and it's interesting, you know, we got connected over, over Instagram and I imagine the social media side of things, whether it's raspberry golf Academy as a whole, or just yourself personally, um, really assist in, in getting people, you know, to know your name, know who you are and know what you're doing out there. Um, how has that side of things been? I know you have a, a YouTube channel that you're doing videos on as well. How, how has that side of the, the world of golf been to you and have, have you seen clientele flock your way because of those videos and whatnot? Have you guys uh, seen the movie, He's Just Not That Into You? You know that movie? So there's a, there's a famous line from that movie that there's like 10 different ways to break up with someone. A girl's like crying because she got broken up over like email, text, you know, all these different ways. That's how I feel about getting golf lessons. I've had people ask me for golf lessons on email, which I have three different email accounts, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, uh, text, voicemail. So I get home from work, I have to check like 15 different things to see if I have a lesson request. It's, it's crazy. But uh, I really do have people reach out to me in all these different ways because I am active on every platform that exists, pretty much social media, except TikTok. I haven't gotten into that one yet. Uh, 
but yeah, so I'm active on all of them. And I also manage all the Raspberry social media. So if you see something on Raspberry Golf Academy, that's Facebook or Twitter or uh, Instagram, that's me as well. I love it. I love it. You're active. You're out there. Um, it's definitely this industry needs more, uh, I think, presence of, of folks like us, whether it's the mid-am age or even a little bit younger that are, are using social media to reach out to the clientele. I think it's a very relatable way to, uh, to pass golf content on and pass it forward. Um, where can folks find, you know, on your most active, I guess, personal pages, whether it's Instagram or LinkedIn or whatever, where can folks reach out and, and say, hey, I'm going to follow his content and see what he's doing on the day-to-day? I would say Instagram is my number one. That's my baby. That's the one that's become my passion. Uh, I feel like that's true for everyone in our age category now. Facebook is now like the older people, right? (laughs) Facebook's kind of lame. It's on the way out. Uh, I'm not quite cool enough for TikTok, I don't think. That's probably not going to be me. Uh, So definitely Instagram. Um, But it's funny because the content's different for each platform, right? I have to do something different for LinkedIn than I would for Facebook than I would for Twitter or Instagram. So, uh, yeah, I don't have any of my platforms connected because the content is a little different each, but Instagram is definitely my baby uh, at Josh Apple Golf. So uh, I try to post stories throughout the day of all my students and they love that. Uh, I really, I enjoy sharing all my students on all abilities uh, on, on Instagram. So I'm posting throughout the day, you know, just different stories of their swings and what we're working on. So I, I really enjoy that and they enjoy it too. Yeah, that uh, that multiple streams of content thing, Dante and I have found very time consuming too. Um, different platforms, different sizes, different uh, you know restrictions and whatnot. Uh, it can be it can be crazy. Yeah. So yeah, I, I I definitely love Instagram as a as a main modem as well. And uh, guys, like he like he said, you can go find him, Josh Apple Golf on Instagram. Uh, that's where he's most active. Josh, I really appreciate the time. But before you head out this evening, I gotta ask you. Got a trophy sitting next to you? Uh, where's the trophy from? Does it have any? personal connection to you and, and if so uh tell us a little story about it no, i just found it on the street i thought I'd, you know grab it no, just, uh, <laughs> so this is my player of the year trophy in the mid-atlantic pga section uh we have a assistance division um, which is basically everyone who's not a head pro or general manager category um so i won the assistant player of the year in the mid-atlantic pga section now, how many times do you have to play or compete to win that player of the year? Like, what, what was your year like in, in kind of gaining that accolade? Uh, well, I finished, top, I want to say top five for sure, or maybe top two or three in all the events that I played in. That's kind of what I do. Uh, I don't necessarily win a lot. I just kind of finished top three, top five. Every time I play, it's like I'm very steady. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's my game now, so... I might make 18 pars or 17 pars in one birdie. It's like, it's like boring golf for other people to watch, but they don't know how actually hard it is to do that. Right now, and just because your scorecard says par doesn't mean it was easy, but absolutely. Uh, so just consistency, I would say is, is how I ended up with that. I think I had zero wins and like a million top fives. Now, how many tournaments do you uh, end up playing throughout like the, the year now that you say that you coach like eight to like 11 players a day? That's how much, yeah. You get out often, like on the, on a tournament aspect, or do you look to, to play like X amount of tournaments per year? I probably play 20, 25 tournaments uh, in the middle Atlantic PGA section. And I play state opens, the Maryland open, the Virginia open. Uh, I work every day that I'm not playing in a tournament essentially. So my days off are my tournaments, which are more stressful than working. So I don't know how much it really is a day off. But, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you, do you prepare much for that? 
I mean, for like with such like a compacted schedule that you have and such a busy schedule, I mean, say you're preparing for a tournament and that's your quote unquote day off. Uh, is it something that where like you say you're grinding out, you know, dealing with players all day and you're there for like 12, 13 hours or you, you step up much and then you're like, all right, now I have to prepare for myself. Or how's that work for someone for such a busy, busy, fulfilled schedule? Yeah, my tournament preparation isn't great. I don't do it. What I tell my students is not what I'm doing. I tell them (laughs) differently than I'm preparing. But I've also played golf at a high level and practiced so much that I've recorded those hours. So that's a little different. But uh, yeah, I'm not doing the preparation that I should be doing. Now for something bigger like the section championship, or the Virginia Open and Maryland Open, I'm taking like a whole week off and that's like a major, right? So that's my whole week. Uh, But for your one day section event, I played one today. Uh, I didn't even know what golf course we were playing until midnight last night. And I went, oh, I should probably look up and see what course, like research the course online. That was my preparation. So not ideal. It's almost like a wing it mentality. Yeah, which isn't naturally wired. I'm the Zach Johnson processed, you know, very, very processed, plan out kind of person. But my job right now just doesn't allow me to do that in terms of my my tournament schedule. But I am that way at work with my lesson schedule. Nice, love it. Now awesome. you mentioned Maryland Open. Uh, is that something you're looking to play in this year? And and if so, um, are you playing qualifiers for that, or are you just, are you are you like exempted in uh, via past performances, or or what's it like as a, a teaching professional getting into some of these state opens? Yeah, in Virginia, you have to be a Virginia resident to play in the Virginia Open. Um, in Maryland, you can be from Virginia, which is interesting, but mm-hmm. Marylanders can play in the Virginia one. But So, yeah, uh, I've played in the Virginia Open. I took a few years off when I was on the mini tours, but I've been playing the Virginia Open since I was 18. The Maryland Open, I started playing in as a section pro because I'm eligible to do so. Um, playing in a state open isn't as big of a deal as, you know, a, a mini tour event, but uh, in terms of compared to section events, now it's like, oh, this is like my major. This is a really big deal. So it's exciting for me to get to go play a bigger purse event against uh, the best amateurs and the best pros uh, within the state. Uh, so, yeah, in this past year, I was exempt into the Virginia Open, but I didn't do well enough this year. So I have to qualify again in, in this year in 2021. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, wishing you the best of luck there. Uh, I'm also as an amateur uh, trying to qualify for the Maryland open this year. So uh, played it in 2018 and 2019 and didn't play it in 2020. So hopefully we'll be back in 2021 and uh, can, can get out there to Baltimore country club. That's one of my favorite places to go play. That's awesome. Yeah. That's one of the best courses around for sure. Yeah, no doubt, man. So, hey, man, again, appreciate the time this evening. Really, uh, really enjoyed getting to hear your story and knowing what you guys are doing out there in Virginia at Raspberry Golf Academy. Uh, it seems like you guys are really on to some great things there and, and really affecting some some greater lives as far as people going to college and people figuring out the game and, and whatnot. So it's, it's really awesome to hear what you guys are doing, and I appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a blast, and hopefully you come out to Virginia and we either play golf or have a lesson or both. Uh, we no, might we'll just have to do soon. both. Both <laughs> is even better. Awesome, Josh. Well, we'll look forward to seeing you sometime soon. Uh, in the meantime, guys, as always, you can go to www.enjoythewalkpod.com to stay up with the latest blogs, the latest podcasts, as well as checking out the latest merch. So, guys, that's Josh Apple, Josh Apple Golf and from Raspberry Golf Academy. Josh, thanks again. Till next time, guys, get out there, carry your clubs, and enjoy the walk. 
stuff one shot at a time.